sexuality. And the reason for that is that really there's no way to talk about chapters 5 through 7 of 1 Corinthians without talking about human sexuality, much as you might like to, and some people would. Uh, So last week, we talked about the idea that there are, in in trying to construct a a Christian ethic of of human sexuality, we have to recognize that there are two sidelines, right? We need to stay within these sidelines, I think, if we're going to have any kind of a fruitful reflection on uh, what it means for us to express our sexuality as Christians, as human beings, according to God's will. One is we need to exclude the idea that sex is always evil, right? So some people over the years have gotten it in their heads that sex is an evil, maybe a necessary evil, but it's evil and you should really try to avoid it as much as possible even if you're married. The other is that sex is always good, that it is impossible to sin in any sexual way, right? So these are the sidelines of the field, so to speak. Today, we're going to talk about two end zones, right? So here are the sidelines. Here's Mike Tomlin with his foot stuck over the sideline. And here are the end zones. The cover of your bulletin features, anybody know who that is? You're nodding, Keith, do you know? Jim Marshall. Uh, and Now, Jim Marshall is uh, famous for holding two records, two all-time records in the National Football League. The one record he holds is that he has the most re- recovered opponent's fumbles. So over the course of his long and illustrious career, he uncovered, or he uncovered, he recovered uh, opponents' fumbles 30 times, and that stands as the, as the league record. He also holds the league record for the shortest play, negative 66 yards, because on October 25th in a game against the 49ers, he managed to recover an opponent's fumble and run it back to the wrong end zone. This really happened. You can find the video if you want. And this is a picture of him after he realized what had happened. Now, the good news for him, uh, the Vikings still ended up winning 27-22, to so it was kind of no harm, no foul. But yes, this is, imagine this, you're, you're famous for eternity for running a football back the wrong way and achieving the shortest play in the National Football League. So, Uh, Today, we are going to talk about these two end zones, uh, the two places toward which play is understood to be headed. Last week, we talked about these two sidelines. Today, we're going to talk about the two end zones. And the the one thing I I want to make sure we don't lose is that all of us, every last one of us, as we are on the playing field... Every last one of us draws fouls. There's a lot of laundry flying because of our own sin. Every single one of us is broken sexually. Every single one of us has desires that are, that are misaligned. Every last one of us. The, the, our understanding of sin is that it affects and it messes up everything about us. The way we think about money, the way we feel 
about our relationships with other people, the way we deal with our work, the way we deal with the creation around us, and sex is part of that. So all of our sexual desires are in some way bent, are some way misaligned from true north, and therefore all of us sin somehow in some sexual manner. Some of those ways in which we sin are more uh, impressive than others, some are more destructive than others, some of them are more public than others, but all of us are sinners, every last one of us. If you get nothing else out of this series, please hear this, that all of us are sinners and in desperate need of God's grace and mercy in our lives. And there is no sin in a sexual realm that is able to exhaust His mercy. But today we're going to talk about these two end zones. And today what I'll be doing is I'll be articulating the traditional understanding of human sexuality, the one that is held by the majority of the church throughout its 2,000 years and, frankly, is held by the majority of the church worldwide. Most of our brothers and sisters in Christ today, as well as throughout history, would affirm this as the proper Christian understanding of sexuality. As, we've, as I've discussed, we're going to be going through this series and under, looking at some different perspectives, um, different ways people understand the question, how they read certain texts in Scripture, but this is the traditional view that I'm going to be expounding today. So let's start with Jesus. Mark chapter 10. In Mark's gospel, he tells us that Jesus then left that place where he was, and he went into the region of Judea and across the Jordan. And again, crowds of people came to him, as was his custom. He taught them. Now, some Pharisees came and tested him by saying, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Well, Jesus says, what did Moses command? They said, well, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. Yeah, it was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law, Jesus replied. But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they're no longer two but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. And when they were in the house again, the disciples asked Jesus about it. He, asked, he answered, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. What Jesus is hearkening back to is an understanding of creation, specifically an understanding of the creation of humanity as gendered and as complementary. The idea that God made Adam and Eve different from one another, but complementary to one another. Genesis 1 reads, God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. So, The very nature of humanity is gendered and it is binary and it is complementary. In chapter 2, we read that the one thing that God saw that was not good was that the man was alone. And so he says, I will make a suitable partner for him. The rabbis point out that when God did that, he didn't take a bone from the man's foot so that the woman would be 
under him or a bone from his head so that she would be over him, but they took a, God took a bone from his side. He took his rib so that she would be beside him. God makes a compliment, a suitable partner for him. And when God does this and Adam wakes up from the anesthesia, he says, wow, this, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She'll be called woman for she was taken out of man. And for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and they will become one flesh. As Jesus says, they are no longer two but one. And those having a, a sacramental understanding of marriage would go so far as to say that there is an ontological change in people when they get married, that they would come into a place like this to get married as two people and they would leave as one. Doesn't look any different. Maybe doesn't feel any different except sort of relief that like none of the groomsmen passed out. But, but they have changed in a fundamental and essential way that they're going to spend the rest of their lives working out. Now, I should note that we also find in the Old Testament room for a different way of being married, that is polygamy. There's no explicit prohibition of it, but I think the the course of the Old Testament witness does carry a very strong implicit uh, suggestion that it's not a very good idea. Some people have said that the penalty for polygamy is having to be married to more than one person. The fact is that most of the people who engaged in polygamous relationships in the Old Testament are not the kind of people you want to emulate in most ways, and things tend not to end up very well for them. The first person who talks trash and declares his intention to be violent is Lamech all the way back in Genesis chapter 5. No, the, the picture that we get throughout Scripture, Old and New Testaments, is that of marriage as an exclusive covenant relationship between a man and a woman made for life. That is, in Proverbs, for example, chapter 5, it, it reads, Drink water from your own cistern, running water from your own well. Should your springs overflow in the streets, your streams of water in the public squares? Let them be yours alone, never to be shared with strangers. May your fountain be blessed. And yes, you're supposed to kind of pick up on the imagery there. May you rejoice in the wife of your youth, a loving doe, a graceful deer. May her breast satisfy you always. May you ever be captivated by her love. Why be captivated, my son, by an adulteress? Why embrace the bosom of another man's wife? For a man's ways are in full view of Yahweh, and he examines all his paths. The evil deeds of a wicked man ensnare him. The cords of his sin hold him fast. He'll die for lack of discipline, led astray by his own great folly. And again in chapter 6, starting in verse 27, Can a man scoop fire into his lap without his clothes being burned? Can a man walk on hot coals without his feet being scorched? 
So is he who sleeps with another man's wife. No one who touches her will go unpunished. Men do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy his hunger. When he's starving, yet if he's caught, he must pay sevenfold, though it costs him all the wealth of his house. But a man who commits adultery lacks judgment. Whoever does so destroys himself. Blows and disgrace are his lot, and his shame will never be wiped away. For jealousy arouses a husband's fury, and he will show no mercy when he takes revenge. See, this marriage end zone is an exclusive one. This end zone where you have marriage between a man and a woman is one that is protected, that is bounded. You'll remember from our series on Song of Songs, this picture, and by the way, as many of you know, I'm, I'm teaching this class at Loyola, this introduction to theology for these 29 freshmen. Please pray for them. This week we looked at Song of Songs, and I was struck again by the way that the imagery in there uh, it, it involves, uh, there's so much about gardens and vineyards. You know, the, the idea with a garden is that it, it's a place that is, that is pleasant. It's a place that's delightful. It's a place that's fruitful. A place that's beautiful. A place you want to be. But it, it can only be that way because it's walled off from the rest of the world. So gardens are places of bounded fertility and joy and fruitfulness. There has to be a boundary around that relationship. And so the, 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 the lovers in Song of Solomon are, are playing with that idea. And, and at one point, one even says, look out for those little foxes that would come in and destroy the vineyards. The idea with, with marriage is that there is something that is beautiful and special and wonderful that is strictly for the two people who are in it. And the walls have to be maintained to keep anyone else out. Strictly for those two people, which is why the writer of Hebrews, for example, at the end of his sermon, says in chapter 13 that marriage should be honored by all and the marriage bed kept pure for God will judge the adulterer and the sexually immoral. I think that's why we find in the pastoral epistles when Paul is talking about the requirements for those who would be leaders in the church that they be, the phrase is one woman man, that they be often translated it's a husband of one wife or a faithful husband. Obviously, some people read that not to mean that the person has to be married. Uh, otherwise, our Catholic friends would find that to be a problem. But the idea is that a person who is, has a character to be a leader is someone who has demonstrated himself to be faithful in regard to his family and to his marriage. Paul talks in his letter to the Ephesians in what may be a, a familiar passage in chapter 5 about m- marriage when he, when he says that, that wives and husbands need to submit to one another. They need to defer to one another. They need to look after the good of one another out of reverence for Christ, which means that, that wives submit to their husbands as to the Lord for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. 
As the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands and everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives. The call on husbands is to love their wives as sacrificially as Christ loves the church. Husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds it and cares for it just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. And for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And this is a profound mystery. But I'm talking here about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Now, as we go on in 1 Corinthians later on this fall, we'll look at what Paul has to say about this in chapter 7 and how this actually works out. But I think we should note from the outset one of the reasons for marriage that Paul gives. Now, a, a way you may have seen this expressed is in the marriage rites. If you've ever been to a wedding, you may have heard somebody get up at the beginning and say something like, dearly beloved, which is the first lie of the day. It says, the bond and covenant of marriage was established by God in creation. This is the Episcopal prayer book, but you got similar language in the other, other, other uh, church's rites. The bond and covenant of marriage was established by God in creation and our Lord Jesus Christ adorned this manner of life by his presence and first miracle at a wedding in Cana of Galilee. It signifies to us the mystery of the union between Christ and his church and Holy Scripture commends it to be honored among all people. The union of husband and wife in heart, body, and mind is intended by God for their mutual joy for the help and comfort given one another in prosperity and adversity, and when it is God's will, for the procreation of children and their nurture and the knowledge and love of the Lord. What's being picked up on here is what we're going to see as we look through chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians, that one of the reasons God has given marriage to people is so that they may enjoy the mutual comfort and aid that it provides. In fact, the way Paul puts it is in chapter 7, verse 2, he says, you know, because there is so much porneia, porneia is the Greek word, we're going to spend a lot of time with the Greek words later on in a couple weeks, you can look forward to that, but because there is so much porneia, which is sexual immorality, kind of a generic term, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. So one way to deal with the fact that we have sexual desire that can be difficult to control is to find a way in which it can be channeled in a fruitful direction. Now, historically, marriage has always been understood to be something that is helpful and beneficial to society, to establishing stability, to ensuring that children are raised in an optimal environment, and for the most part, Children tend to do better when they are raised by their birth parents. 
But as you recall, God doesn't say it is not good for the man to be alone, therefore I shall give him a bunch of kids. He says it is not good for the man to be alone, therefore I shall make a suitable partner for him. The idea is that it is good for us to be married. It is good for us to find a life partner and to be married, to be open and in relationship with that person in a way that we are not open and in relationship with anybody else. And the traditional understanding is that that is for a man and a woman according to this design and creation of complementarity and binary gender. This is what New Hope has always taught. This is what we continue to teach. But it wasn't just the Pharisees who tried to trip Jesus up. And here's where we get to the other end zone. A couple chapters later in Mark's gospel, the Sadducees showed up. Now, the Pharisees were, were a renewal movement. They were bright young things. They were passionate, wanting to be radical in their devotion to God and wanted all of Israel to be the same. The Sadducees were of a different sort. They tended to be the ones in power in the temple and in the local administration. They tended to be the ones who were willing to get along well with the Romans. They tended not to be such strict uh, adherents to Scripture. And in particular, they disagreed with the Pharisees over the question of whether there would be a resurrection of the dead. The Pharisees says, well, yeah, I mean, look, in Daniel it says God's going to raise everybody from the dead on the last day. And the Sadducees says, no, that's silly. How are dead people going to come back to life? And one of their arguments that they would use to demonstrate how absurd the idea of resurrection was, was this one. They go to Jesus and they say, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and have children for his brother. This is the practice of leveret marriage, a way to ensure that uh, mostly that, that widows are taken care of and the property is kept within the family. So let's say there were seven brothers. The first one marries and he dies and he leaves no children. The second one marries his widow, as the law demands, but then dies childless. And then the third marries her and dies childless, and so on and so forth, until all seven of the brothers have married this woman. No kids. Finally, she dies too, relieved. So, at the resurrection, teacher, whose wife will she be? Who gets to have her as a wife at the resurrection? Because she's been married to all of them. And Jesus replied, I I love, this is just way high on the list of great Jesus smackdowns. Are you not in error because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God? When the dead rise, they'll neither marry nor be given in marriage. They'll be like the angels in heaven. How about the dead rising? I mean, haven't you read in Torah the story of the burning bush? How God said to Moses, I'm the God of Abraham and Isaac and of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, 
but of the living. You are sorely mistaken. See, the other end zone is celibacy. And if we take Jesus seriously, and I think we should, can I get an amen? That's the end zone we're all going to end up in eventually. Which means, by the way, that if in glory we're all celibate, then it's going to be better than sex, which is going to be pretty impressive. But that's the end zone that some people believe that they are called to run to now. You'll see in, in uh, Matthew's telling of this story, and it shows up in Luke as well, in Matthew's telling of the, the teaching about divorce when Jesus replies that Moses permitted divorce because of hardness of heart, but it wasn't that way from the beginning. Anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness and marries another woman commits adultery. And Jesus' disciples said to him, are you serious? If this is the deal, it's better not to get married. If I don't have a back door, if I don't have a way out, if I can't just divorce my wife if she doesn't please me, maybe I'm better off just being celibate. Now, this is called hyperbole. This is a literary device where somebody says something extreme that they don't actually mean. But Jesus replies, no, actually, I'm not going to take your statement as a rhetorical device. The fact is, not everybody can accept this word, but only those to whom it is given. Some are eunuchs because they were born that way. Others are eunuchs because they were made that way by men. And others, eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. We have every reason to believe that Jesus, in fact, is one of those who was a eunuch for the sake of the kingdom of heaven, unless you want to go and read the silly things Dan Brown has written. It is most likely that Jesus was, in fact, himself single and celibate. That he, when he said, not everybody can accept this, but only those to whom it's been given, he understood himself as one to whom that word has been given. It's for the sake of the kingdom of heaven that he chose a celibate life. I think of our friend Wes Hill that Mary and I got to know when we were on our trip to Israel in February. Wes teaches at Trinity School for Ministry, which is a very fine school despite its proximity to Pittsburgh. Wes is a New Testament scholar and he's gay. He's attracted only to men. He was raised in a good, solid Christian home. He was not abused. He did not have uh, difficulty forming a solid relationship with his father. He went through all of the things that often conservative Christian kids go through when they wrestle with the idea that they are gay and had a lot of people tell him that something must have happened to him that never actually happened to him. He is only interested in, in other men. And he believes that for him to honor God, according to the passages that we're going to read throughout the course of the next several weeks, he has to commit himself to a celibate lifestyle as a single person. He has a a blog that he shares with others called Spiritual Friendship. In fact, 
He has a, a book out of, by that title. He wants to make it clear that being celibate doesn't mean that you are embracing a lonely lifestyle. Some people who are celibate, in fact, ensure that they can live that out well by living in community with other people who have made those same commitments. Think of a monastery or simply the rectory in a large parish where you have multiple priests living together who have made this commitment. And people who have made this commitment, who have discerned this vocation to celibacy and have embraced it, will usually tell you that, like most vocations, it's something that you can grow into. It's something that, in some ways, becomes more easy, becomes more natural, becomes more just who you are and how you live. It's something that might seem like it was entirely impossible to do when you set out on it. It ends up being something that you're able to live into joyfully. The same, incidentally, is true of marriage for many people. When you have young people in their sexual prime all crazy in love with each other, making commitments about what they're going to do for the next 50 or 60 years, they're going to find plenty of difficulty in living that out. Yet often we find that as we do it, that it's something that we can grow into. Now the strengths of this traditional understanding of there being two end zones toward one of which you're supposed to be playing the game into one of which you should be ending up. Strengths of this, of course, include the fact that it is something that the church has supported for 2,000 years, almost exclusively. And again, among our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world, even today, though this is not the case here in the United States, it's not the case among many denominations, but it really is the majority view of Christians around the world. Simply the fact that a lot of people think something is true doesn't mean that it's true, but it's something we should take seriously. G.K. Chesterton, the great Victorian writer who was a Catholic and a fat man, said that tradition is the democracy of the dead. And if we're going to consider our various options, we should probably allow those who come before us to have some voice. It does seem to align well with the plain sense of Scripture as we read it. But we have to realize that one of the reasons it seems to align well with the plain sense of Scripture as we read it is that we tend to read Scripture through the lenses that we've been accustomed to looking through. And if, in fact, we've been reading it through traditional lenses, we shouldn't be surprised that we find that it fits that paradigm. This view does have weaknesses. The fact is, it doesn't work out very well for a lot of people, including faithful Christians. There are plenty of people who find it very difficult to live faithfully in either end zone. People who find it difficult to stay within the bounds of marriage. People who are not able to build a solid and healthy and lasting relationship. Some of them despite trying multiple times. And there are people who 
try making vows of celibacy and find themselves unable to live into those. For people who don't find either heterosexual marriage or celibacy to be very attractive, it makes them feel kind of exposed. It's a very hard teaching to say that you're supposed to be playing the game toward one end zone or the other. And it's hard enough for people who would like to be in a particular end zone and are having a hard time getting there, but but for those who don't feel like either of those is what they're called to, can be an exhausting thing simply to be playing the field. And it leaves a lot of folks with the problem that Paul identifies in chapter 7, that they are burning with passion, that they have sexual desire that they would like to have met, but they don't have the ability to avail themselves of that structural remedy of, of a marriage relationship in which it's expected. In fact, Paul says it's fraud if you're not being sexually active and you're not having your sexual desires gratified in the course of your heterosexual marriage. So some folks have proposed some variations on this based on somewhat different understandings of the biblical text. And that's what we'll be looking at next week. Let's pray. Lord God, as always, we open your word, trusting that you will guide us into all truth and knowing how desperately we need to be guided into all truth. And we open your word asking you to show us what it is that we need to see, whether we want to see it or not. We ask that in all things we would submit not to our own preferences, but to your will. And we ask that this would be to your glory and to the edification of your church. Amen.